Section 24 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 7. Chapter 4. A Picture of a Country Gentlewoman Taken from the Life. Mr. Western, having finished his hello, and taken a little breath, began to lament, in very pathetic terms, the unfortunate condition of men who are, says he, always whipped in the humours of some damned bitch or other. I think I was hard run enough by your mother for one man, but after giving her a dodge, here's another bitch follows me upon the foil. But curse my jacket if I'll be run down in this manner by any of them. Sophia never had a single dispute with her father till this unlucky affair of Blyfell, on any account except in defence of her mother, whom she had loved most tenderly, though she had lost her in the eleventh year of her age. The squire, to whom that poor woman had been a faithful upper servant all the time of their marriage, had returned that behaviour by making what the world calls a good husband. He very seldom swore at her, perhaps not above once a week, and never beat her. She had not the least occasion for jealousy, and was perfect mistress of her time, for she was never interrupted by her husband who was engaged all the morning in his field exercises, and all the evening with his bottle companions. She scarce indeed ever saw him but at meals, where she had the pleasure of carving those dishes which she had before attended at the dressing. From these meals she retired about five minutes after the other servants, having only stayed to drink the king over the water. Such were, it seems, Mr. Western's orders, for it was a maxim with him that women should come in with the first dish, and go out after the first glass." Obedience to these orders was perhaps no difficult task, for the conversation, if it may be called so, was seldom such as could entertain a lady. It consisted chiefly of hallowing, singing, relations of sporting adventures, and abuse of women and of the government. These, however, were the only seasons when Mr. Western saw his wife, for when he repaired to her bed he was generally so drunk that he could not see, and in the sporting season he always rose from her before it was light. Thus was she perfect mistress of her time, and had besides a coach and four usually at her command, though unhappily indeed the badness of the neighbourhood and of the roads made this of little use, for none who had set much value on their necks would have passed through the one, or who had set any value on their hours would have visited the other. Now to deal honestly with the reader, she did not make all the return expected to so much indulgence, for she had been married against her will by a fond father, the match having been rather advantageous on her side, for the squire's estate was upwards of three thousand pounds a year, and her fortune no more than a bare eight thousand pounds. Hence, perhaps, she had contracted a little gloominess of temper, for she was rather a good servant than a good wife. Nor had she always the gratitude to return the extraordinary degree of roaring mirth with which the squire received her, even with a good-humoured smile. She would, moreover, sometimes interfere with matters which did not concern her, as the violent drinking of her husband— which in the gentlest terms she would take some of the few opportunities he gave her of remonstrating against. And once in her life she very earnestly entreated him to carry her for two months to London, which he peremptorily denied, nay was angry with his wife for the request ever after, being well assured that all the husbands in London are cuckolds. 
For this last, and for many other good reasons, Western at length heartily hated his wife, and as he never concealed this hatred before her death, so he never forgot it afterwards. But when anything in the least soured him, such as a bad scenting day, or a distemper among his hounds, or any other such misfortune, he constantly vented his spleen by invectives against the deceased, saying, If my wife was alive now, she would be glad of this. These invectives he was especially desirous of throwing forth before Sophia, for as he loved her more than he did any other, so he was really jealous that she had loved her mother better than him. And this jealousy Sophia seldom failed of heightening on these occasions, for he was not contented with violating her ears with the abuse of her mother, but endeavoured to force an explicit approbation of all this abuse, with which desire he could never prevail upon her by any promise or threats to comply. Hence some of my readers will, perhaps, wonder that the squire had not hated Sophia as much as he had hated her mother. But I must inform them that hatred is not the effect of love, even through the medium of jealousy. It is indeed very possible for jealous persons to kill the objects of their jealousy, but not to hate them. Which sentiment, being a pretty hard morsel, and bearing something of the air of a paradox, we shall leave the reader to chew the cut upon it until the end of the chapter. CHAPTER five. THE GENEROUS BEHAVIOR OF SOPHIA TOWARDS HER AUNT Sophia kept silence during the foregoing speech of her father, nor did she once answer otherwise than with a sigh, but as he understood none of the language, or as he called it lingo, of the eyes, so he was not satisfied without some further approbation of his sentiments, which he now demanded of his daughter. Telling her in the usual way, he expected she was ready to take the part of everybody against him, as she had always done that of the bitch her mother. Sophia remaining still silent, he cried out, What, art dumb? Why dost unspeak? Was not thy mother a damned bitch to me? Answer me that. What, I suppose you despise your father too, and don't think him good enough to speak to? For heaven's sake, sir, answered Sophia, do not give so cruel a turn to my silence. I am sure I would sooner die than be guilty of any disrespect towards you. But how can I venture to speak, when every word must either offend my dear papa, or convict me of the blackest ingratitude as well as impiety to the memory of the best of mothers, for such I am certain my mamma always was to me? And your aunt, I suppose, is the best of sisters, too, replied the squire. Will you be so kind as to allow that she is a bitch? I may fairly insist upon that, I think. Indeed, sir, says Sophia, I have great obligations to my aunt. She hath been a second mother to me. "'And a second wife to me, too,' returned Western. "'And so you will take her part, too. "'You won't confess that she hath acted the part of the vilest sister in the world.' "'Upon my word, sir,' cried Sophia, "'I must belie my heart wickedly if I did. "'I know my aunt and you differ very much in your ways of thinking, "'but I have heard her a thousand times express the greatest affection for you, "'and I am convinced, so far from her being the very worst sister in the world, "'there are very few who love a brother better.' "'The English of all which is,' answered the squire, "'that I am in the wrong. "'Aye, certainly. "'Aye, to be sure, the woman is in the right, "'and the man in the wrong always.' "'Pardon me, sir,' cried Sophia. "'I do not say so.' "'What don't you say?' answered the father. "'You have the impudence to say she's in the right? "'Doth it not follow, then, of course, that I am in the wrong? "'And perhaps I am in the wrong to suffer such a Presbyterian Hanoverian bitch "'to come into my house. "'She may dight me of a plot for anything I know, "'and give my estate to the government.' "'So far, sir, from injuring you or your estate,' says Sophia, "'if my aunt had died yesterday, I am convinced she would have left you her whole fortune.' "'Whether Sophia intended it or no, I shall not presume to assert. "'But certain it is that these last words penetrated very deep into the ears of her father, "'and produced a much more sensible effect than all she had said before. 
he received the sound with much the same action as a man receives a bullet in his head. He started, staggered, and turned pale, after which he remained silent above a minute, and then began in the following hesitating manner. Yesterday. She would have left me her estate yesterday, would she? Why, yesterday, of all the days in the year. I suppose if she dies to-morrow she will leave it to somebody else, and perhaps out of the family. My aunt, sir, cried Sophia, hath very violent passions, and I can't answer what she may do under their influence. You can't, returned the father. And pray, who hath been the occasion of putting her into those violent passions? Nay, who hath actually put her into them? Was not you and she hard at it before I came into the room? Besides, was not all our quarrel about you? I have not quarrelled with sister this many years but upon your account, and now you would throw the whole blame upon me, as though I should be the occasion of her leaving the estate out of the family. I could have expected no better indeed. This is like the return you make to all the rest of my fondness. I beseech you, then, cries Sophia, upon my knees I beseech you, if I have been the unhappy occasion of this difference, that you will endeavour to make it up with my aunt, and not suffer her to leave your house in this violent rage of anger. She is a very good-natured woman, and a few civil words will satisfy her. Let me entreat you, sir. So I must go and ask pardon for your fault, must I? answered Western. You have lost the hair, and I must draw every way to find her again. Indeed, if I was certain— Here he stopped and Sophia throwing in more entreaties at length prevailed upon him, so that after venting two or three bitter sarcastical expressions against his daughter, he departed as fast as he could to recover his sister, before her equipage could be gotten ready. Sophia then returned to her chamber of mourning, where she indulged herself, if the phrase may be allowed me, in all the luxury of tender grief. She read over more than once the letter which she had received from Jones, her muff, too, was used on this occasion, and she bathed both these as well as herself with her tears. In this situation the friendly Mrs. Honour exerted her utmost abilities to comfort her afflicted mistress. She ran over the names of many young gentlemen, and having greatly commended their parts and persons, assured Sophia that she might take her choice of any. These methods must have certainly been used with some success in disorders of the like kind, or so skilful a practitioner as Mrs. Honour would never have ventured to apply them. Nay, I have heard that the College of Chambermaids hold them to be as sovereign remedies in any of the female dispensary. But whether it was that Sophia's disease differed inwardly from those cases with which it agreed in external symptoms, I will not assert. But in fact the good waiting woman did more harm than good, and at last so incensed her mistress, which was no easy matter, that with an angry voice she dismissed her from her presence. CHAPTER six, CONTAINING GREAT VARIETY OF MATTER the squire overtook his sister just as she was stepping into the coach, and partly by force, and partly by solicitations, prevailed upon her to order her horses back into their quarters. He succeeded in this attempt without much difficulty, for the lady was, as we have already hinted, of a most placable disposition, and greatly loved her brother, though she despised his parts, or rather his little knowledge of the world. Poor Sophia, who had first set on foot this reconciliation, was now made the sacrifice to it. They both concurred in their censures on her conduct, jointly declared war against her, and directly proceeded to counsel how to carry it on in the most vigorous manner. For this purpose Mrs. Western proposed not only an immediate conclusion of the treaty with Allworthy, but as immediately to carry it into execution, saying that there was no other way to succeed with her niece but by violent methods, which she was convinced Sophia had not sufficient resolution to resist. By violent, says she, I mean rather hasty measures, 
for as to confinement or absolute force, no such things must or can be attempted. Our plan must be concerted for a surprise, and not for a storm. These matters were resolved on, when Mr. Blyfold came to pay a visit to his mistress. The squire no sooner heard of his arrival than he stepped aside, by his sister's advice, to give his daughter orders for the proper reception of her lover, which he did with the most bitter execrations and denunciations of judgment on her refusal. The impetuosity of the squire bore down all before him, and Sophia, as her aunt very wisely foresaw, was not able to resist him. She agreed, therefore, to see Blyfold, though she had scarce spirits or strength sufficient to utter her assent. Indeed, to give a peremptory denial to a father whom she so tenderly loved was no easy task. Had this circumstance been out of the case, much less resolution than what she was really mistress of would perhaps have served her but it is no unusual thing to ascribe those actions entirely to fear, which are in a great measure produced by love. In pursuance, therefore, of her father's peremptory command, Sophia now admitted Mr. Blyfell's visit. Scenes like this, when painted at large, afford, as we have observed, very little entertainment to the reader. Here, therefore, we shall strictly adhere to a rule of Horace, by which writers are directed to pass over all those matters which they despair of placing in a shining light a rule we conceive of excellent use as well to the historian as to the poet, and which, if followed, must at least have this good effect, that many a great evil, for so all great books are called, would thus be reduced to a small one. It is possible the great art used by Blyfell at this interview would have prevailed on Sophia to have made another man in his circumstances her confidant, and to have revealed the whole secret of her heart to him but she had contracted so ill an opinion of this young gentleman that she was resolved to place no confidence in him, for simplicity, when set on its guard, is often a match for cunning. Her behaviour to him, therefore, was entirely forced, and indeed such as is generally prescribed to virgins upon the second formal visit from one who is appointed for their husband. But though Blyfell declared himself to the squire perfectly satisfied with his reception, yet that gentleman, who, in company with his sister, had overheard all, was not so well pleased, he resolved, in pursuance of the advice of the sage lady, to push matters as forward as possible. And addressing himself to his intended son-in-law in the hunting phrase, he cried, after a loud, Hollo! Follow her! Boy, follow her! Run in! Run in! That's it, honeys! Dead! 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 Never be bashful! Nor stand, Shall I? Shall I? Allworthy and I can finish all matters between us this afternoon, and let us have the wedding to-morrow. Blyfell, having conveyed the utmost satisfaction into his countenance, answered, "'As there is nothing, sir, in this world which I so eagerly desire as an alliance with your family, except my union with the most amiable and deserving Sophia, you may easily imagine how impatient I must be to see myself in possession of my two highest wishes. If I have not therefore importuned you on this head, you will impute it only to my fear of offending the lady.' by endeavouring to hurry on so blessed an event, faster than a strict compliance with all the rules of decency and decorum will permit. But if by your interest, sir, she might be induced to dispense with any formalities— Formalities! With a pox! answered the squire. Pooh! All stuff and nonsense! I tell thee, she shall have thee to-morrow. You will know the world better hereafter, when you come to my age. Women never give their consent, man, if they can help it. Tis not the fashion. If I had stayed for her mother's consent— I might have been a bachelor to this day. To her, to her, go to her, that's it, you jolly dog. I tell thee ye shall have her to-morrow morning. Blyfell suffered himself to be overpowered by the forcible rhetoric of the squire, and it being agreed that Western should close with Allworthy that very afternoon, the lover departed home, 
having first earnestly begged that no violence might be offered to the lady by this haste, in the same manner as the popish inquisitor begs the lay-power to do no violence to the heretic delivered over to it, and against whom the church has passed sentence. And to say the truth, Blyfell had passed sentence against Sophia, for however pleased he had declared himself to Western with his reception, he was by no means satisfied, unless it was that he was convinced of the hatred and scorn of his mistress. And this had produced no less reciprocal hatred and scorn in him. It may perhaps be asked, why then did he not put an immediate end to the further courtship? I answer for that very reason, as well as several others equally good, which we shall now proceed to open to the reader. Though Mr. Blyfell was not of the complexion of Jones, nor ready to eat every woman he saw, yet he was far from being destitute of that appetite which is said to be the common property of all animals. With this he had likewise that distinguishing taste, which serves to direct men in their choice of the object or food of their several appetites. And this taught him to consider Sophia as a most delicious morsel, indeed to regard her with the same desires which an Ortolian inspires into the soul of an epicure. Now the agonies which affected the mind of Sophia rather augmented than impaired her beauty, for her tears added brightness to her eyes, and her breasts rose higher with her sighs. Indeed, no one hath seen beauty in its highest luster, who hath never seen it in distress. Blyfell therefore looked on this human Ortolan with greater desire than when he viewed her last. Nor was his desire at all lessened by the aversion which he discovered in her to himself. On the contrary, this served rather to heighten the pleasure he proposed in rifling her charms, as it added triumph to lust. Nay, he had some further views, from obtaining the absolute possession of her person, which we detest too much even to mention, and revenge itself was not without its share in the gratifications which he promised himself. The rivalling poor Jones, and supplanting him in her affections, added another spur to his pursuit, and promised another additional rapture to his enjoyment." Besides all these views, which to some scrupulous persons may seem to savour too much of malevolence, he had one prospect, which few readers will regard with any great abhorrence, and this was the estate of Mr. Western, which was all to be settled on his daughter and her issue. For so extravagant was the affection of that fond parent, that provided his child would but consent to be miserable with the husband he chose, he cared not at what price he purchased him. For these reasons Mr. Blyfell was so desirous of the match that he intended to deceive Sophia by pretending to love her, and to deceive her father and his own uncle by pretending he was beloved by her. In doing this he availed himself of the piety of Thwackham, who held that if the end proposed was religious, as surely matrimony is, it mattered not how wicked were the means. As to other occasions, he used to apply the philosophy of Square, which taught that the end was immaterial, so that the means were fair and consistent with moral rectitude. To say truth, there were few occurrences in life on which he could not draw advantage from the precepts of one or other of those great masters. Little deceit was indeed necessary to be practised on Mr. Western, who thought the inclinations of his daughter of as little consequence as Blyfell himself conceived them to be. But as the sentiments of Mr. Allworthy were of a very different kind, so it was absolutely necessary to impose on him. In this, however, Blyfell was so well assisted by Western that he succeeded without difficulty. For as Mr. Allworthy had been assured by her father that Sophia had a proper affection for Blyfell, and that all which he had suspected concerning Jones was entirely false, Blyfell had nothing more to do than to confirm these assertions, which he did with such equivocations that he preserved a salvo for his conscience, and had the satisfaction of conveying a lie to his uncle, without the guilt of telling one. 
when he was examined touching the inclinations of Sophia by Allworthy, who said he would on no account be accessory to forcing a young lady into marriage contrary to her own will, he answered that the real sentiments of young ladies were very difficult to be understood, that her behaviour to him was full as forward as he wished it, and that if he could believe her father, she had all the affection for him which any lover could desire. As for Jones, said he, who I am loth to call villain, though his behaviour to you, sir, sufficiently justifies the appellation, his own vanity, or perhaps some wicked views, might make him boast of a falsehood, for if there had been any reality in Miss Western's love to him, the greatness of her fortune would never have suffered him to desert her, as you are well informed he hath. Lastly, sir, I promise you I would not myself for any consideration, no, not for the whole world, consent to marry this young lady, if I was not persuaded that she had all the passion for me which I desire she should have. This excellent method of conveying a falsehood with the heart only, without making the tongue guilty of an untruth, by the means of equivocation and imposture, hath quieted the conscience of many a notable deceiver. And yet, when we consider that it is omniscience on which these endeavour to impose, it may possibly seem capable of affording only a very superficial comfort, and that this artful and refined distinction between communicating a lie and telling one is hardly worth the pains it costs them. Allworthy was pretty well satisfied with what Mr. Western and Mr. Blyfell told him, and the treaty was now, at the end of two days, concluded. Nothing then remained previous to the office of the priest, but the office of the lawyers, which threatened to take up so much time that Western offered to bind himself by all manner of covenants rather than defer the happiness of the young couple. Indeed, he was so very earnest and pressing that an indifferent person might have concluded he was more a principal in this match than he really was. But this eagerness was natural to him on all occasions, and he conducted every scheme he undertook in such a manner, as if the success of that alone was sufficient to constitute the whole happiness of his life. The joint importunities of both father and son-in-law would probably have prevailed on Mr. Allworthy, who brooked but ill any delay of giving happiness to others, had not Sophia herself prevented it, and taken measures to put a final end to the whole treaty, and to rob both church and law of those taxes which these wise bodies have thought proper to receive from the propagation of the human species in a lawful manner, of which in the next chapter. End of section 24